Well, this morning as we look at God's precious and sacred word together, I'd like you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 2 and verses 4 through the first part of verse 10. Verse 4 through the first part of verse 10. We return to our study of 2 Peter this morning after taking a break last week for Father's Day as we honored our fathers. And as I've shared with you before, there are many pastors who don't preach out of 2 Peter. It's some pretty harsh words for false teaching and false teachers. And sometimes uh, pastors tend to shy away from some of those kinds of passages, but and I'm not in any way being critical. I'm just saying I think it's, it is important for us to preach what the Holy Spirit has inspired and to address it, even though sometimes it might seem a little harder to digest and understand. What we have in verse 4 through verse, or the first part of verse 10 is one long sentence. It's really interesting here. This is one long sentence. Um, and it's written in a way, it's written that way for a purpose, so there's really no breaks. Everything fits together around one main theme and purpose here. Now, in your English Bibles, you will notice that there is a break in verse 10. The first part kind of goes with the paragraph above, and the second part of verse 10 goes with the paragraph below. And the reason that is, and I know most of you know this, but maybe some of you don't, but in the original manuscripts, all of the letters, all of the books of the Bible were actually just long manuscripts. There were no chapter divisions and there were no verse divisions. Those were inserted actually hundreds of years after the New Testament was written, a couple of hundred years after that. Um, and we are thankful for those monks, for those men that inserted those chapters and verse divisions because it helps us to reference uh, those uh, particular verses as uh, you know we need them and as we study but it's also important to know that they are not a part of the originals again if you were given second peter in the first century it would have just been one long letter there was no chapter one chapter two and chapter three and the reason i tell you that is because sometimes there can be and it doesn't happen very often they actually did an excellent job uh, with their insertions, but every once in a while it's an awkward, and so there's a break there. There's a break where actually the first part goes above and the second part goes below. Well, having said all that, let me read this sentence for you, verse 4, through the first part of verse 10. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, 
For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Well, our first point this morning is the danger of false teachers. As I mentioned, the book of 2 Peter, especially the second and third chapters, is about false teaching and false teachers. And we may wonder sometimes why Peter and the other New Testament writers are so harsh when writing about false teachers. I mean, we live in a culture where we say, judge not. Love wins. Love others. And so, we find these harsh words unlike that. We find these difficult words, sometimes they shock us a little bit. So why? And I just want to address that for a minute this morning. Why are these New Testament writers so harsh? Why do they use such harsh language when it comes to false teachers and false teaching? And the reason is because we are talking about the truth of God. We are talking about truth itself. It is good to remember the eternal reference point of all truth is God himself. That is especially true of the Bible, the Word of God. But it is true of all that we can say, this is true and this is false. All that is true can be traced back to its ultimate reference point, and that is God himself. He is the author of all truth. And we need to remind ourselves over and over again that only God has the divine right to say what is true and what is false. Okay, let me say that again. Only God has the divine right to say what is true and what is false. For centuries, mankind has lived among cultures where that which is right and wrong among us changes all the time. That which used to be right is now wrong. That which used to be wrong is now right. And it's almost like stay tuned. Isn't it in our culture? What was true just 20 years ago isn't necessarily true today in the eyes of our culture. And who knows what will be seen as right and wrong 15, 20 years from now. But not so with God. His truth never changes. What he has said is true is always true and what he has said is false is always false. But at the center of his truth, at the very heartbeat of his truth, is the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ died and rose again to accomplish our salvation. A salvation that he offers as a free gift to all who will receive it by faith alone. That is the gospel. 
that Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection did everything necessary to accomplish our salvation and he offers that salvation to all who will believe by faith alone. There is nothing we can add to it. There is nothing we can do to earn it. We simply receive it as something that has already been done for us, that has already been accomplished for us. Now, please listen very carefully. False teachers pervert, distort, and replace the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, false teachers pervert, distort, and replace the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of Satan's highest goals is to keep you out of heaven and to see you condemned to hell forever. Okay, you want to know what Satan wants? He wants to see the people of this world kept out of heaven and condemned to hell forever. And so he wants to do everything he possibly can to distort, pervert, and replace the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And Satan uses false teachers to carry out his mission. He uses false teachers to try and accomplish that goal in the world. So folks, the reason these biblical writers use such harsh languages because we're talking about life and death. We're talking about heaven and hell. We cannot mince words here. It is possible that a false teacher could so distort the gospel that someone doesn't believe and ends up in hell forever. Listen to what Paul says. Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. This is just one example. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Folks, it doesn't get any harsher than that. The word accursed literally means let him be under God's curse. It is the word anathema. It means let him be damned forever. Whoa. If anyone comes to you, and notice what he says, I don't care if we're an angel, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be damned forever. Two weeks ago in verse 1, we read, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. There will be. He doesn't say there might be. There could be. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly, who will secretly bring in destructive false teachings, heresies, even denying Jesus who accomplish their salvation and will bring upon themselves swift destruction. Let everyone here know that false teaching 
and false teachers will be a constant threat and danger to the church until Jesus returns. Okay, false teaching and false teachers will be a constant threat and danger to the church until Jesus, excuse me, returns. We must always be on the alert. As we read newspapers, as we go online to read the news, as we look at current events, as we look at our phones, as we are on our laptops, as we watch uh, the news and, and all of the things going on around us, we are to always be so alert for false teaching and false teachers. And, and, we must not allow them to shake our confidence in God or his holy word. We must not. We must not allow them to shake our confidence in who God is and in the preciousness, inerrancy, and authority of his holy word. I shared with you two weeks ago that that's what false teachers want to do. To every single one of you here, and I speak in a special way to those of you who are in your late teens and early 20s, high school, college age. That is a prime age for young men and young women, even brought up in good churches, to have doubts and to listen to their peers who have doubts can we really trust the Bible? Wasn't it just written by a bunch of men hundreds of years ago? Can we really say this is the word of God? How do we know this is the word of God and not the Koran or not the Book of Mormon? How, how do we really know that? Do we really know that Jesus is God? I mean, fully God? Did he really rise from the dead? Is there really a hell? I mean, would a loving God actually send people to hell? Do you see what Satan and his false teachers want to do is they want you to doubt and they want you to doubt and they want you to doubt because when you doubt, you will not serve him and you will not worship him and you will not live for him. Verse 9 is the key to our passage this morning. Everything centers on verse 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. That's what this whole passage is about, is that one verse. The Lord knows. He knows how to rescue the godly and he knows how to punish the ungodly. The whole point of this text can be summed up in one word, and that is assurance. God wants us to have assurance that he is who he says he is, and his word is what it proclaims itself to be. Don't worry. Place your confidence and trust for your salvation, for your whole life, in God himself and in his word. Our second point this morning is three examples and one main lesson. That's what this sentence is. It is three examples and one main lesson. Peter provides his readers and us 
with three examples from the book of Genesis of how God rescues the godly and punishes the unrighteous. And Peter wants you to know you are never ever to forget those examples from the book of Genesis. They aren't just there as good moral stories. They're not fairy tales. They're not just good moral readings. They are the truth of God. They are historical facts, and I want you to know them, he says. First, first, God did not spare angels when they sinned. Verse 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. The little phrase, for if, can be also translated since since God did not spare angels. Now think with me this morning. Angels are the most glorious and mighty beings under God. Angels who surround the throne of God and worship and praise Him. Angels who do His bidding. Who are these mighty creatures that in some ways we are fascinated by. Peter wants us to know all of their power and glory was of no use when they sinned. Now, the Bible is primarily a book about God's relationship with mankind. Okay, it is about the creation, the fall, the salvation or restoration, and the consummation. That is primarily what the Bible is about. The creation, the fall, the salvation, and the consummation. Salvation or restoration, coming back to God. I say that because the Bible is not primarily about angels. So there are many things about angels that we do not know. There are some things that we do know. And Peter does not intend for this verse to cause us to go into great speculation about angels. There is a warning here. Here's what we do know about angels. We do know that one of the highest angels, Satan or Lucifer, fell from heaven in his disobedience. He wanted to be like God and so was cast out of heaven. He took with him a number of other angels whom we refer to today and whom the Bible refers to as demons. Sometimes they are referred to as angels. We'll see this in a minute. But they are fallen angels. They are demons. So we do know that. We also know this. Some of those demons were immediately cast into hell to be kept for judgment at the end of time. Other demons have been allowed to roam loose and are still roaming loose today and are wreaking havoc upon the earth and opposing God and his message and his messengers. Now, when we get beyond those truths about demons, we get into a lot of speculation. But we do know this. We do know this, that in the end, they will be judged and they will be destroyed. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10, it says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire 
and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We do know according to Revelation 20 that the lake of fire is going to be the final destination for all unbelievers who have rejected the gospel, who have rejected Christ. It will also be the final place of torment for Satan and for the beast and for the false prophet. But I want you to watch this. Matthew 25, 41. Jesus says this in talking about the judgment at the end of time. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. Now watch this. Prepared for the devil and his angels. So we do know that the final destination of all fallen angels will be the lake of fire. And God will surely punish them and punish them thoroughly. But don't miss this. Here's the whole point of verse 4. If God did not spare angels, if God will punish angels who sinned and disobeyed, you can be sure he will punish false teachers. You can be sure of it. If he didn't spare the angels, he certainly will not spare them. Second, God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah and his family. Verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. The flood is to be a timeless warning to all false teachers. Folks, there was a time upon the earth when God brought about a great flood and wiped out all of mankind except eight people. Noah, his wife, their three sons and their wives. Everyone else men, women, and children. Everyone else, men, women, and children, were wiped off the face of the earth and were judged by God because of their wickedness. Let every false teacher take note. If God destroyed the whole world by a flood, he will certainly punish and destroy them in the end. But also take note of this. God's rescue of Noah and his family is designed to bring comfort and assurance to all believers of all ages. When God brought about that flood, he saved those who trusted in him. There were only eight of them at that time, but he rescued them all. He saved them all. And you can be sure if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will be saved from the judgment to come. Not only do you have a right relationship with God, not only are your sins forgiven, but you can be sure you will be saved from the judgment to come. Third, the third example. God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, but rescued righteous Lot. Look at verses 6 through 8. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, 
making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Let every false teacher know let all of those who perpetuate false teaching know if God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he will destroy you as well. God so destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness and sin, there is no longer any trace of either city or the small cities around them that were also destroyed. We only know that Sodom and Gomorrah existed from an archaeological standpoint because they were prominent cities prior to their destruction. But after their destruction, all that was left was dust and ashes. Look at verse 6 again. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction. That's not a hyperbole. That's not an allegory. He destroyed them and condemned them to extinction. But take heart. Even in the midst of that destruction, God rescued Lot and his daughters. Unfortunately, his wife looked back and was turned into a pillar of salt. But God rescued those who were righteous. We know from Abraham's prayer and plea that there were not even ten righteous, but he did or was going to spare Lot, his wife, and his daughters. Now, three times in verses 7 and 8, Lot is described as a righteous man. That is strange to us. Because when we read about Lot in the Old Testament, he sure doesn't seem like a very righteous or holy man. A few years ago, I preached through the life of Abraham, and we spent quite a bit of time talking about Lot. If you remember, Lot and Abraham uh, could not stay in the same land. They couldn't, it couldn't, the land couldn't sustain all of their flocks and herds, so they had to part ways. And he let Lot choose where he wanted to go, and Lot went to Sodom. Economically, the Jordan Valley was very fertile and a good place to go, but already by then, Sodom and Gomorrah were known as very wicked cities, so he put aside moral concerns and still went to Sodom. When the angels come to warn him, he hesitates leaving to the point where the angels have to grab him and his family and, in a sense, yank them out so that God can spare them. And then after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his daughters are involved in this very wicked drunkenness and incest. So he sure doesn't seem like a very righteous man. But there was more to Lot than that. First of all, we need to keep in mind that when the angels came to Sodom, he did welcome them. Nobody else did. Nobody else was going to welcome those two men when they came to Sodom, but Lot did. 
And though he hesitated, he eventually obeyed God and left the city. And he did not look back. He obeyed God. That's kind of what we know about Lot until we come to the book of 2 Peter in verses 7 and 8. That's why the Bible is always the best commentary on the Bible. We know something about Lot we would not know from the book of Genesis. It said that Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. You know what we didn't know about Lot? That even though he went to Sodom and he probably, well, he definitely should not have gone there in the first place. He was tormented in his soul. And in this week, three times he's called righteous Lot, that righteous man, tormenting his righteous soul. That all the while he was there, his soul, it was tormenting his righteous soul to watch the wickedness that was around him. It literally means this, that phrase, tormenting his righteous soul, literally means it was wearing him down, it was wearing him out. Day after day after day, he watched the wickedness that was going on around him, and it was just wearing him out, wearing him down. You see, like Abraham, Lot believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So in God looking forward to the coming Messiah. He was in Christ. That was his righteousness. And folks, let it be a reminder. We should all strive to live righteous lives. But even if you feel far from it, even if you've had some sins and grievous errors in your life, if you know Christ, you're still saved. He saved Lot. He rescued Lot and his daughters from that destruction and condemnation because Lot was a righteous man, a righteousness that had been given to him. We call it imputation, imputed to him by God himself. And though his life wasn't always that good, he still was righteous in his relationship with God. But again, don't miss the thrust here. Oh my, if God did not spare angels, if God destroyed the whole world by a flood, if God completely destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah to extinction, you can be sure he's going to punish and destroy all false teachers. The three examples from the book of Genesis provide the evidence for the one main lesson. So we come full circle here to our main point. In verse 9 it says, Then, if he did not spare angels, if he did not spare the ancient world, if he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, then, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Now, when it says the Lord knows how to do this, it doesn't just mean, yeah, God knows how to do it. It means he has done it. He continues to do it. And he will continue to do it. 
Okay, that's what it means. When it says the Lord knows how to rescue the godly and to punish the ungodly, it literally means he has already done it in the past. He continues to do it in the present and he will continue to do it in the future. Let every child of God know that the Lord knows. He knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Verse 10 once again reminds us of the characteristics of false teachers. Two weeks ago I shared with you from a sermon by John MacArthur four characteristics of a false teacher. There aren't just four, but four of the characteristics common to false teachers, and two of them are reiterated in verse 10 especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion. It means those who indulge or delight in perverting God's teaching or God's set standard for sexuality. Those who pervert and distort and replace God's clear teaching on human sexuality. God has ordained from the beginning of time that sexual relations are to be confined to a man and a woman, a husband and a wife in the bound of the marriage relationship, period. Sexual relations are to be confined to a husband and a wife only in the marriage relationship. Anything other than husband and wife, anything outside the marriage relationship is forbidden by God and is clear disobedience to what God has designed and created. Just keep that in mind because you will see or you are seeing and will continue to see a constant, constant attack on God's biblical sexual ethic. Second, they despise authority. You will always see false teachers despising authority. When a false teacher leaves a biblical church or is kicked out of a biblical church, they will usually start their own, quote, church, and they will be the leaders of that church. They don't want to be under anyone else's authority. But it means more than that. They especially despise the lordship of Jesus Christ. They do not want to be under his authority. They will do everything they can to distort the person and work of Jesus Christ. Last week, I shared with our fathers that a kingdom man is a man who aligns himself under the authority of the lordship of Jesus Christ. A false teacher is, a one, is someone who does everything he can to get out from underneath the authority of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Well, let me try to bring this all together as we close this morning. Divine judgment will come upon all who deny Christ, especially those who lead others astray with their false teaching. Let me say again, 
The reason this is such an important subject, the reason the biblical writers use such harsh language is because heaven and hell hang in the balance. Heaven and hell hang on whether we trust Christ as Savior or deny him. Folks, I've said this to you many times before. Satan is very wicked, but he is not stupid. He knows. He knows the heart of God is for the salvation of fallen men and women. He wants to bring them back to himself. He wants to forgive them, to redeem them. And Satan wants to do everything he can to keep you out of heaven and to condemn you to hell forever. Love and compassion and truth demand that we talk about the judgment to come. Love and compassion and truth demand that we as Christians talk about the judgment to come. If we do not talk about God's punishment and if we do not talk about God's wrath and God's judgment, then we do not love people. He has warned us and we are his messengers and we are to be those who warn others. But let me try to end on a very positive note you can be saved from the judgment to come. Every one of us can be saved from the judgment to come if we repent and believe in the one who accomplished a full and free salvation for those who believe. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. If you come to Jesus, if you receive him as Lord and Savior, you can have his full and free salvation that was fully accomplished for you. It's all done. It is finished. It's all done for you. It was accomplished in his death and resurrection. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to try to live a good life. I mean, that doesn't earn your salvation is what I'm trying to say. That's not what earns our salvation. It has already been done for us, accomplished for us. All we can do is receive it as his free gift. If you've never done that this morning, I invite you to do that right where you sit. To say, Lord Jesus, I have sinned and I cannot save myself. Come into my life. Be my Lord and Savior. We have each week a prayer in our bulletin. You can look at that prayer. Pray it with all of your heart. Repent of your sin and surrender your life to Christ. Folks, until we die, until we die, let's do everything we can to protect the gospel. Let's do everything we possibly can to protect the gospel message because it is everything. It is the difference between heaven and hell. And let's do everything we possibly can to oppose false teachers and false teaching. And part of that means that I must live for him. I must seek to live a pure life, an obedient life, so that I can be a light for Christ, so that my light can shine, so that the gospel message can be given and shared through me when I find myself in sin and disobedience, all I do is shut off my light and keep myself 
from sharing with others. So let us do both at the same time. Let us protect the gospel message with all of our hearts and let us live pure lives for him so that he can shine the light of his gospel through us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, help us. The only reason any of us are saved this morning is because someone shared with us the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, help us to keep that message pure. Help us to protect it with our lives. Thank you for those who have protected it and given their lives for it in the past so that we have it today. Oh Lord, may your gospel message ring out in our community and our nation and to the ends of the earth. May everyone know that Jesus saves. For in his name we pray. Amen.